do you think? The next lecture in this series is tomorrow night, in which Kenneth Nebensaw, who is that most excellent of all persons, someone who hires regularly from the Columbia Rare Books program for his uh, celebrated antiquarian bookselling establishment in Chicago, will be speaking autobiographically on his career as an antiquarian bookseller in this country. I heard an earlier version of the speech that he's giving here tomorrow at the 1982 Denver out-of-print and antiquarian bookseller seminar in 1982, and it is most excellent. I recommend it. Nabon has handled some of the biggest books of our time in interesting, imaginative, and ethical ways, and I'm looking forward to having him here. We have had the great good fortune over the past several days of having Don Etherington from the Humanities Research Center, the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center, speaking last Thursday to the conservation seminar and speaking to you tonight on various plans, retrospective and uh, future, of the Humanities Research Center at the University of Texas. It's a great pleasure indeed to have him here. Well, good evening. It's a little difficult to talk to some of the same people uh, on Thursday uh, as we are tonight. You'll just have to bear with me that there are some of the similar slides uh, just to put this all in perspective. I think uh, um, last, on Thursday, I mentioned that the uh, three rules of a conservative turned administrator was compromise, compromise, compromise. In this talk, I think there's no compromise because <laughs> um, we are talking about the conservation program at HRC and the proposed new academy of bookbinding um, in 87. Um, and I suppose what I would like to see come out of that combination is a standard of excellence that uh, is unsurpassed, if you like, in this country um, on both areas. Now, the Academy doesn't have or is going to have an official connection with the Conservation Department, but it's on the same floor of the same building, and uh, I think the two things being very close together in that sense will, I hope, engender the same sense of excellence that we're trying to develop in the new academy, as, and then hopefully that will trans, transpose itself into conservation. I do feel that in conservation uh, binding, um, I always try to develop a sense of finesse in the work that we're doing for conservation. There tends to be uh, a movement in through con book conservators to have some sort of fluffy, newly washed, unpressed, funny moving book that they call cons conservation binding. And uh, to me, it's totally unrealistic to the real world of a book. And so I try to use the same concepts and have it look like a book again. And and in the same sense of the, um, the new academy, which will really emphasize fine binding par excellence, let's say, hopefully we can do that, by trying to attract the finest teachers in the world to come and teach, that being next to the conservation department, that those same f finesse aspects of, say, a French binding can be turned using conservation principles. And so that we'll have this nice combination of uh, beautiful fine bindings, but with good material, good techniques of structure that we've all learned in conservation. So um, that's the premise of what we're trying to do there. Now, for people, as I say, on Thursday who saw a little on the conservation program, you're going to have to bear with me and we'll run through some of these slides pretty quick on the program for the people who have not seen it. Um, it's new to you. Can we have the slides? In? Oh, 
you know, modern, modern, to kill me. This is the uh, Harry Ransom Center. <laughs> we won't say HR, HR, HRC, <laughs> though some people go, ah, when they say it. But, um, it's a fine building for a library. Uh, no windows, as you can see. Um, and very poor for a conservation lab. Uh, I show this just to show where I, I am in the hierarchy, which is sort of, a, who did that? I know I've, I've it's funny because I think a lot of people would like to fade that out <laughs> um, it, it's important in a sense because it just allows uh, me to sort of get some of the things that I want uh, without having to fight bureaucracy or stubborn curators or librarians we don't have too many but uh, it is filled with um, a lot of material and we base our program on the mass uh, it's not nothing like Columbia which I've just heard but uh, we do have 9 million manuscripts 800,000 rare books and 4 million photographs and about 200,000 works of art on paper and that does create a problem within itself just on the numbers game this is a the type of material that the HRC is famous for and this is a page proof of Ulysses um, with all the changes and inundations of uh, James Joyce. But you can, t you can see the quality of the paper and it just gives a real uh, illustration of the, of the mass of the material that we have, that we have to deal with. It is rather a, an interesting challenge to do that type of material versus early, early material. This is uh, Evelyn Moore's diary. And of course our rare book collection, I hate rare book word, the word rare book, but never mind. Um, this is the Gutenberg case uh, and the Gutenberg Bible. It's a very interesting uh, copy actually. Uh, it's the basis of uh, Professor Todd's um, paper on one of the pages here. The fifth line of the two column has been, has been dropped and it's the third, or it's been the fifth line has been raised to the third line and the third line's in the fifth line on both columns and of course the premise of his paper is how did that happen if you <laughs> uh, the assumption is that um, they were set in this type by single uh, pieces of type it would be real interesting how that happened and also how, where, how were they set in it were they set in it from a manuscript and uh, and that does give some interesting uh, features of this copy um, I mean I think the, the premise might have been that it was set by linotype well you know uh, it's an interesting concept but we don't want to go on about that but that's an interesting copy that we have here oops sorry an interesting selection of uh, paperback and not paperback but paper bound vellum bindings which reflect a little bit of the few other slides that I'm going to show you on our conservation style binding uh, that we try to uh, carry out at HRC. Um, the photographic collection of course starts with the very first photograph uh, done by Neps in 1826 and uh, it's in pretty poor condition and you can't see it as, as you can on here. It's um, not so easy to see now. Lewis Carroll uh, photograph, Theatre Arts Collection. I always show this because I love this poster. I told the other group that it's my favourite poster, and I would steal it if I could. It's a great poster. But um, actual three-dimensional stage sets by Bel Geddes. Uh, this is for the Dead End Kids. But the real problem in for conservation, of course, and we, and it's really actually a problem, but I answer it very easily by not doing anything about it. We don't have the expertise to do three-dimensional pieces as such as this. This is one of the problems that we do have to face, and this is the movie mats from the Theatre Arts Collection on very brittle board. 
uh, and they come in a whole range of media, pastel, watercolour, uh, pen and ink and so on, and they're beautiful pieces actually, but uh, in very poor shape and on very bad support board. There's 1,500 of those. But these are the things that they put in front of uh, the camera when they're making movies, and I mean, if you think you would see a film star or walking down this road, say, or driving a car or whatever, he's really not going down the road. They just put this in front of the camera. It's an interesting feature. And in the iconography collection, we have uh, drawings by Eric Gill, the prints, and uh, watercolors by Frank Ray. I'm watercolor, I'm sorry, this is pastel. Nice book plate by Picasso for Apollinaire. We are running through this rather quickly just to show you that the, the very, very wide expanse of materials that we have to deal with. We have a staff of 13 conservators um, in three major sections, well, four major sections really. The book, rare book section, paper section, uh, art on paper section, manuscripts, uh, section and the um, photographic uh, section. This is our conservation pie that we try to work with the curatorial staff of the uh, HRC to try to devise um, a sense of priorities for any particular year and it's roughly divided up if, we, if you can imagine 50% of our time is spent on collection work 10% on administration, 10% on professional development, 20% on professional development, 20% on exhibits. Well, of course, you can see this particular month we failed miserably and never did anything like that. And uh, I just show that because it's a very important part of our program that we've tried to involve the curatorial staff from day one in the conservation effort. And we work very closely with the the staff and in fact involve them totally in the preservation effort. In fact, we have everybody of the HRC involved in preservation in a physical sense even. The pages, for instance, make polyester book jackets while they're not paging. Receptionists put documents into sleeves while they're waiting at the desk. Everybody from the director down is involved in conservation and so instead of having, as I said, 13 conservators on the staff, we pretty much nearly have 100 people on the staff. And, and that reflects the numbers game that I was telling you before. There's no way 13 conservators could deal with that type of collection. And if we never bought any more large collections from this day on, I suppose, give me 10 years and I will rehouse this collection. But obviously that's not going to happen. But assuming it did, I reckon with the, the effort that we put into it, we could, in fact, rehouse the collections of the HRC that is in need of rehousing in 10 years. Well, I'm sorry. We tried to educate the staff, and this is early on in uh, early 1980-81. We tried to, uh, before we had any treatment workshops built, we tried to encourage all the staff to learn about encapsulation and the very simple rehousing techniques that we brought to bear on the collections early, before, of course, the treatment labs were finished. So we had exhibitions, you know, showing how boxes uh, can be used for the rehousing of the collection and uh, beautiful bindings that we have at HRC need protection. And so we have a massive program of boxing at, uh, in Texas. We showed, by example, how books should be exhibited and uh, how they should be phase boxed and so on and so forth. We try to encourage good copying practices. Now, this is we don't allow copying, of course, by the s members of the public, but uh, the staff also needed to be trained uh, how to uh, reproduce certain things. We don't do a lot of reproduction at HRC, but um, we have a microfilming program, uh, not for um, preservation, uh, believe it or not, but for reader requests. And this is a prismoscope, if any of you are in, uh, 
heard of the Prismascope. It's uh, and nearly becoming a, a vintage uh, model now. There's only there was only 15 produced in in England, and they now have disbanded. So um, it worked very well, and uh, and it still is functioning very much, especially with our material, which is so brittle, and you can't open some of these bindings that we use this a lot. You know, really nearly as much as the regular microfilming camera. We also established a good security system. Not that I can take credit for the design of the Gutenberg case. It was already done uh, before I came, but um, in other areas. But this illustrates the type of security we have. And this is on the guard's desk, the monitor. And next to the desk is an environmental control um, on the Gutenberg case showing temperature and humidity. And it seems to work absolutely beautifully. It, uh, it has not gone wrong ever since I've been there, which is five years now. In 1980, as, as when we first started the program, of course, there was nothing of any note in conservation being done at the HRC. And so whatever you see and whatever we've done now is starting from scratch. And that was one of the major challenges for me to, in fact, go down to Austin, Texas to be able to set up a whole new program from scratch. These are the book rests that we developed for the reading room. And as I mentioned on Thursday, it's a rather interesting uh, feature that uh, the readers now, in fact, ask for these rests. After seeing them in there, they've, they've got a nice sense of feel and they become a requested item and get very upset when other readers have used them and they don't have their own book rest. Um, and we have them in different sizes and uh, it's a really very simple method three part uh, uh, book rest and you can open the, the side pieces and the book can open more or it can only open to what is natural for it and what's really important when they see that they in fact don't open it more than, it, than it's uh, allowed they get a sense of preciousness and uh, it's rather nice to see them use it and you don't have to say anything really of course, there are other uses for these, but uh, <coughs> and of course, these are the stations that we have in the back of the uh, in the collection areas throughout all the divisions, uh, so that uh, the staff, while they're not doing some other project, they can just get in there and do some conservation. Uh, projects, and this is book, you know making polyester book jackets. And what's really interesting about this concept too is that the staff have really got quite interested in doing this. And so they do it, in fact, sometimes at the expense of their other duties because it's, it's an enjoyable uh, pastime for them. This is uh, an area in the manuscript section, which is in the holding area. So any of the manuscript curators or uh, pages or sorters, when they ever come across a real serious problem, um, they will bring it to this area and put it here and the conservator will come down and see if there's anything can be done to it. But it has engendered a whole sense of, uh, of uh, you know, a watchful eye on their normal day-to-day -day, uh, duties. They've got this sense that they're involved in the conservation effort as well. In fact, and now very involved, there was one particular story of an architecture student who was doing uh, housing for the iconography collection and he designed a map draw divider beautifully designed actually it sounds very simple but he designed it so that it was all interlocking so that you could divide a map drawer into various sizes for the particular collection that was to be housed in that area and he had it published in the AIC bulletin and he was just a, a student helper and uh, so we get a lot of uh, input, new input, from students that are not in conservation. This is the uh, book lab, and uh, um, there's various features such as the sunken uh, presses into the bench so that you can slide material in. It was a feature that was designed in Florence that I liked. It has enough room for seven conservators. Paper lab. And there's the wet area there that we call the wet area, which is used by the book people that come through that door. But you'll notice in the previous slide, 
all the benches were static and in the paper lab they're all on wheels and I designed it so that it's real, very flexible in the paper lab and each bench n not only is it on wheels but has a, a system so you can lower or, or bring it down to sitting height. These are for standing and we have another series of benches along this wall here for sitting and you can change it for ever, whatever purpose you want to do. This is the photographic lab. And this, this is complete. This has the fume hood and the dark room uh, all in one, one area versus the other one in the paper lab you, you notice an absence of your fume hood and that is in another room. I try to keep solvent work and the use of the fume hood separate from the regular lab. This is my pride and joy. This is the exhibit area of the conservation department. And the idea being, of course, is that hopefully as the years go by, we'll fill this area up with examples of conservation treatment and it will be act like an educational center and it will stop the continual disruption of the labs by visitors. Not that we want to discourage visitors, but it does tr take a tremendous amount of time away from the conservators and uh, you know, you're always having to bring work from the collections, put it show and tell, and basically you've lost a day on any one trip of uh, visitors. So I'm hoping that this will take a, a care of that problem, though I don't want to think of it as a problem. And hopefully they'll be satisfied and it won't be something that they're thinking they're being shoved off somewhere else. We have some fancy analytical equipment. This is the X-ray fluorescent uh, where we can analyze uh, materials uh, non-destructively. Of course, none of us have great experience in this type of equipment, but we're learning. Uh, and as I said before, I purchased all this equipment when the honeymoon was on, and we're still married, but I don't know if I would have uh, got this equipment now. <laughs> this is the laser part of that uh, piece of equipment. Um, it's on across the hall because you have to have a space between the, this laser and the operator. But it will identify 32 elements uh, in the high range of the table and it's really very useful, especially in photographic conservation. This is the IR spectrometer and Sue here is putting a sample in to test for a film or a glue uh, film, whatever. And it's a, it's a very nice piece of equipment that uh, we've got used a lot in the last couple of years now. Here it is on the Pelkin Elmer computer and that's one nice thing that the conservators can use this fancy analytical equipment and even though they're not expert scientists is because the computer will do all the major work for them. Here's a compound microscope. This is when she was working on a Japanese paper uh, research and uh, I show this equipment only to illustrate that one of the other functions of the lab is that hopefully we'll, we'll be able to do some research that places like the Library of Congress won't be able to do or are not interested in and we might be able to do it on a smaller scale and get some of these answers uh, to the problems that we all face. Alright, let's quickly go went through that series. We've been really interested in uh, conservation as we call it, conservation binding or non-adhesive binding. And this is twin rocker paper that you'll see here, but um, also next to it on the top is uh, an early binding uh, with, you, as you can see, similar qualities. And uh, that's 15th century uh, paper binding, and uh, not six, 15, I'm sorry, 16th century. But it's got some of the qualities that the twin rocker are trying to produce for us and for the conservation field. And uh, we are really emphasizing really top quality paper for bindings, top quality vellum, and top quality alum toward pigskin. Those three uh, materials are what we really tend to use now in conservation because all the other types of materials that uh, we tend to use are pretty poor. Some, there's some good cloth, of course, that is being produced that um, we also try to encourage. And you can see here these really early bindings, but just beautiful, and they're just paper. And when you see examples like this of early structures, 
you really have got to take note of them and uh, and try to learn from that construction and that generally there's no adhesive in the binding structure at all. And here's an example of some of the uh, uh, types of non-adhesive binding structures with the lang long stitch, as they call it, on some of these paper bindings. There's a real poor facsimile at the bottom. As you can see, that we haven't learned very much. That bottom sample you can see is all creased and wrinkled and and it's brand new and yet these early ones, they're not. They're soft and they've got a nice quality about them that we haven't been able to recreate yet. I mean, that's just a sample and not a very good one, but it's in, interesting to see how poor it's done. I don't know who did that. I don't want to know who did But just to show some of the qualities of these vellum structures and uh, paper structures, and basically the, all that you're seeing here is tacked in stitches and basically this is going through the cover and this is all that's holding the cover onto the to the text block. Um, it's, it's as near as I would describe it as tacketing. But as you can see, purely by sewing and uh, slotting and cutting and no glue at all used. And, in, and as you can see, in pretty much pristine condition. And here's the, an interesting inside to see that uh, vellum being tied up in there, inside. But there's a sense of quality about that piece and, and quality of the paper, quality of the binding, structure, and it all flows very nicely. And what one would try to do is to recreate that in our conservation binding. Very simple cut, uh, not fidgety, just a real honest to goodness cut, but look at the thickness of that vellum that's on that uh, um, spine there. Really, you know, very understandable. Somebody's understanding what's going on when who's doing that. They know what the hell they're on. <laughs> and you see there's no glue. There's no glue between the cover and the, the backs of the signatures. And beautifully in shape. Everything's in, in still in nearly pristine condition. This is one that we did, uh, I think this was at LC actually, but this is a binding, of course, a modern binding on an early piece that's fallen apart, of course. And uh, you can see the condition of this piece. And it was all treated and bound up in a nice vellum, uh, limp vellum binding structure. And uh, for Terry, as uh, interest, this is the Elsa Sanzonen uh, vellum. And it's beautiful material, but really rather nice and natural, and and, and nothing spectacular, but uh, using all the best quality materials available at this moment. And as I said to before, I like to try to use all these concepts of non-adhesive binding, good materials, um, on some of the materials that we're faced with. And here's a horrible book, very brittle. Uh, as you can see, um, if I, I think I'm right in saying that my memory is now, it was all oversewn. So we took the oversewing off and sanded the edges so we got rid of most of the damage because it's so brittle that it was just disintegrated. And we put it, got it into single leaves and guarded throughout every leaf. Now if bookbinders here or conservators will know what that means, you can see this book is about two inches thick. And we used a, a linen support uh, and vellum support in the spine. In that curved piece there, there's a piece of vellum attached to a linen support, which you can see is a made-up linen support with two bits of linen with a piece of uh, handmade paper in the middle. And the book was sewn around that curved support with no glue betw uh, between that linen support and the signatures of that book. And you can see that's pretty tough, strong thread. That is not thin thread. And the binding complete. Now, I must admit, in this, in this case, this is going against what I said, but this material is... Um, a trial material from Harmer Tan. They were trying to produce a good tan leather 
So we tried it out in this particular instance. But if you look real close and if you knew something about binding, you would see some features that it's um, an inside back corner. It's, it's full thickness. There's no thinning of the leather here. And vellum tips and admittedly uh, some marble paper that I wouldn't call conservation quality, but aesthetics got in the way, let's say, in that case. But the structure of it, um, where we need the strength, is in, is in the, uh, the sewing structure. But you can see the book opens beautifully, and but there's no adhesive in that binding at all, except in sticking the leather to the boards and that. But and here's another example of the similar similar structure. And it's very interesting because uh, if you notice, there's no rounding and backing shoulder in this either. And this is music, of course, and one wouldn't want to round and back music. And uh, <coughs> as you can see right down the fold there, there's no shoulder. And you don't need to back books either. So we, we, we do a lot. Of, most of our books are not touched with a backing hammer at all. And there's no reason for it. Uh, most early books anyway were never backed. All right. Um, I'm trying to make sure I get everything through this. Um, so we're trying to establish some really good principles of the conservation department. We have a problem, of course, because we get people there for, say, five years, and all of a sudden they leave us because they've been offered a good job and more money. And uh, so we never seem to get out of the cycle of uh, you know, bringing new people, and then by the time they're ready to do some really good work, um, they leave us. But I suppose that's a fact of life of any establishment like ourselves. Um, but... <clears throat> that's what we're trying to do with the conservation department. We are now, as I say, in 1987, we'll be opening, uh, and I think it's 90% certain that we will open in 1987 an Academy of Bookbinding. And uh, I'm not certain the word academy is, it seems a bit too rich for my blood, but it, it will be a place where six students could come and study fine binding under the, one of the, some of the finest teachers of binding that we can uh, encourage to come into this country. I say that as if there's nobody in this country that could teach it. That's not totally true. There are some good people. Michael Wilcox is a very fine binder. Um, <clears throat> and we could list a few others, but not many. And uh, what we want to try and do is, of course, to have those people here in this country. And I think we need to get and establish a place where people can develop their skills. And so they will have a, we'll have a generation of, of really good, fine binders in this country. Because I think it's lo we're losing it. We're losing the art of fine binding. Um, and it's not being perpetuated in this country as I would like to see anyway. So it's one place, hopefully, in the States that we can have that established. And Mr. Turner, the director, of course, has been very interested in, in design binding. And when he was 30 years at Bridwell, he developed one of the finest collections of design binding I've ever seen. And so now he's at HRC, he's, he's already establishing a, a really fine collection there. We have, a, at the present moment, I think, 130 design binders, uh, design bindings at uh, HRC. Um, of course, it reflects the European uh, tradition, French, German, and, uh, and the Swiss, and that's sort of sad, really, because it would be nice to reflect the American tradition, and so hopefully the new academy <coughs> eventually will have bindings by Americans in there. Uh, but... I show some of these slides because the, the, the finish and the technique that is, is shown in these bindings are, is superb. Um, there's no other word for it. And of course, one of the ways they did that was, of course, separate the, the techniques. You know, it was, there was a finisher and there was a forwarder and there was a designer. And uh, of course, that's a tradition that I don't think any of us would want to perpetuate in this country. We would like to feel that the artist craftsman uh, could do it all. And people like Philip Smith and, and others, of course, do their own. 
and I try myself but uh, and uh, but if you see these bindings and handle them there's there's a sense of of beauty and finish and artistic uh, expertise that you cannot reap that we we can't somehow achieve and uh, I think we need to learn some of the tricks of the trade that these people could bring to us but here look at that beautiful um, <coughs> French Levant that's in the background of this binding it's the grain is beautiful untouched unbruised um, very square the calf if you've ever dealt with this box calf as I call it um, it's very very difficult to handle I mean you only got to look at it with a, uh, a sideways glance and you've got a mark in it and yet many French bindings use this box calf and it looks untouched as if the binder never had to touch it it's beautiful pieces of work very difficult techniques they in of course one of our problems of course is that the bindings don't last and of course um, that's where hopefully we can step in with our tradition in the states here to try to encourage that balance of conservation techniques with modern design binding and of course their argument is they say they're not they're bound not to open I mean that should be the thing that they have under every French over every French binding school the bound to not open but they tell you that the French binders will tell you that they say but it is not to be opened the collector has a second copy and that is that I, I know that sounds funny but that's exactly true and they're not to be opened and they don't and uh, Philip Smith as uh, most of you know is an English binder who has superb workmanship and uh, of course we won't go into his uh, his problems of discussion <laughs> well actually it most likely is Jesus and I think some people might think it's but no, no, I shouldn't say that no um, but his working his qualities of workmanship are, are superb and uh, um, his techniques are very sound and in fact his bindings will open and they'll last too maybe some of us wish they wouldn't no I shouldn't say that no I I'm a great supporter of Philip Smith's bindings um, but some of the things that we try to encourage in the in the uh, in the collection are things like this, this is a Paul Bonnet and this is the original drawing and uh, and then we've also got the tooling pattern and uh, uh, it's so funny because when I see this uh, slide it reminds me of my uh, binding patterns they're filled with scotch tape I mean and you see even in this one <laughs> the scotch tape is now disintegrating and uh, uh, I don't know if any of you uh, know what all those figures are but uh, some of you do if you're binders but it might be interesting for some of you or not but the numbers illustrate the number on the on the gouge, or the or the pallet. They're all, all all gouges and pallets are numbered, and and when you have the drawing in front of you, you go round every curve and every straight line, and and use the gouge that fits the curve, and you just number it so that you can easily pick it off the finishing stove when you go to um, uh, tool it. The Scotch tape uh, tends to be in areas where, in some cases, in certainly in my bindings, they would be cut out. So I would take a little uh, triangle out of the paper pattern so that I could stick the paper pattern to the binding. You know, because you can imagine if you've got a full sheet like this, there's no way of attaching it tightly to the leather. And so, uh, also, in this one, I bet that it's where lines join onlays so you have to cut to show the onlay that's underneath so that when you put the pattern on it matches up exactly with the onlay that's on the on the, the book already but it's really interesting because we all suffer from the same thing scotch tape um, uh, was always used by binders to hold their patterns down 
I'm not certain what we would have done if we didn't have scotch tape there. And you see the finished example, I mean, what I said about the, um, in that particular one wasn't in fact true in this case, but it's a, it's a binding that's upside down, of course, but never mind, that's just a slide. <laughs> but you can, you get a sense of it. It's a, it's a beautiful binding. But there was two or three craftsmen in that, involved in that, in that book. And uh, uh, I still wish that we could uh, establish that sense of everybody being in, the one person and being involved in the total picture. Um, Hugo Pella, shown here, is of course one of the types of people that we hope to um, encourage to come for maybe three months, six months, or a year. All depends how their schedule is, uh, because they have a tremendous amount to give um, uh, in all sorts of ways. It, it might just be in pairing of leather, it may be in gold tooling, it may be in structure. I mean, uh, Hugo really binds everything a scone style, which I don't agree with, but still, it's not going to be a situation where everybody agrees with every situation that comes about, but I think by getting a diversity of, of people from all over the world, it's going to be a tremendous experience for the students when they're there. And here's an example of, of, of Hugo uh, working with Hans Ernie. This is a, um, a design, a watercolor by Hans Ernie for the binding that you see here, done by Hugo. And they work together, and they've worked together for many years. And this is the front cover. Beautiful piece of work. The, the white lines, by the way, for the binders here, just out of interest, they're they're strips of thin leather and if I, some of you may have gone to his uh, workshops but he makes a hole in the board and sticks the end of the uh, white leather in, into the hole to, to anchor that thin strip of leather and it's rather nice because on this particular copy also um, uh, Hans Ernie did a little drawing and uh, um, talked about his relationship with Jacks Willow. This is a beautiful binding which I think I'd like to show to any bookbinding student. If I could do gold tooling like that, I wouldn't be standing here. <laughs> it's absolutely staggering piece by Crete, uh, a design by Dufy, and that gold tooling is so good and so bright, <laughs> it makes me feel I want to give up just magnificent piece of work and it's it's becoming a lost art in this country good gold tooling uh, Gerard Cherrier is of course known for his gold tooling but it's it's real difficult to to achieve this excellent this standard here that you see I show this not just that so I want people to know that I also buy books <laughs> this is one of my later findings and uh, uh, you can put it out of focus so you don't see the... Uh, that's not really bad gold tooling, that's silver tooling. <laughs> and uh, this is my latest one that I've uh, just finished. Uh, but uh, it's the most awful book to bind in, that's ever been made, I think. If you've ever seen this book, it's filled with... Um, samples of paper, tipped in samples and they're all at the top half of the book to the left so it's like a growth, this book is <laughs> this binding looks appalling actually for me in fact I'm thinking of rebinding it because I'm so I'm, I like the design but I hate the way I bound it, you know I tried to bind it as it was and the spine about in between that, the first and second band is about three inches thick and the tail is about an inch thick and it's just a, it's one of those squishy modern design <laughs> bindings that I was no, so I may be redoing this particular one but, and I think that's it Terry but uh, I just tried, hopefully, to give you some insight to what we're trying to do here at uh, Austin. Uh, I would hope that you have some questions.
Did I go? Not too long. Well, I think I would assess gold tooling as when you see a gold line as being sharp, no fuzzy edges. We've, we've got it made. Yes? No, no, we can't, we can't have it affiliated with one of the departments of the university. Well, I say we can't. Can't is, a, is something you should never say. It's not going to be envisioned that way. We will give a certificate, maybe, of, of whatever that student has carried through. It could be, for instance, a session with one like Ernst Ammering from Austria on some aspect of, of his work or whatever he's trying to teach you. You might be with him for three months, for instance. Well, you could have, let's say, a certificate to say that you did go through his uh, session. Um, the students, I think, will not be beginners. I mean, it's crazy to expect. It's not a how-to school. It will be people that want to really seriously enhance their skills that they already have. And I don't. I I made the the distinction in most of what I was saying. I used the word fine binding, not design binding, uh, because I do think there's a there would be a lot of employment offered to a good fine binder. Now, design binding, that's what you would do most likely at home in your own, own workshop and make money doing design binding. But as a living in this country, I think if you was the star pupil of this academy, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't think that's uh, really a... Uh, no, you wouldn't come to the academy so that you could earn a living as a design binder. There are people, of course, uh, around that do. There's Philip. There's Michael Wilcox, who I think is one of the finest binders in North America at this moment. Um, and uh, th so they, they do earn their living doing binding. I think Michael does some conservation work, but very little. So it's possible. Um, but I think the real emphasis here is in fine binding. The design part of it, the, the extension of learning really fine skills can be carried on to into design binding if that's the particular interest of that person. What I was hoping, of course, is that some conservation binders would feel that if they could really learn superb technique, that they could then go off and do good conservation binding. That would be superb combination uh, for our field, because there's some pretty poor binding going on in conservation field under the guise of, of antique um, style binding, like crooked lettering. Well, it was crooked on the in, the, in those days, so we do it crooked. Um, that type of thing, you know, bruised turnings and uh, all that sort of thing, crinkled end papers, you know, well, it was, you know, and uh, there's no reason for it, so. I think what we're going to try and do, and I, I have to say this with uh, uh, a little uncertainty, it really all depends how much money we, we're going to get. We, we are opting to try to get a rather large endowment from uh, a person that we think might give us that money. <laughs> and um, in that case, if we get what we think we're going to get, we would even offer a stipend to the student. So they, we will pay the student to come and, uh, um, and also pay the instructor, of course. And uh, So it could be, for instance, I could imagine a scene where a student who could stay for a year, for example, could stay for a year doing binding, and, he, and that he or she may be under one or two or three um, artists in residence who, who are at that particular period of time. Or it may be a student would wish to come for a th to know that there's a particular 
uh, artist coming, or I would like to spend three months with him or her and study that particular um, feature that's being uh, sort of pursued at that moment. There will be, a t I mean, I can see a student wanting to stay a year because they will have the facility of the lab, not the conservation lab, but the new academy lab, for a full year. And they could really develop on their own in between periods, for instance, if there was a time when there would be, uh, you know, a period of, say, a month between visiting artists, they would have the availability of the lab to practice and they could come to me and get a few, it's only just down the corridor, and uh, they could be a real nice interplay of practice while um, there may not be a, a, an artist in residence there. Um, that's a good question which I haven't posed and I haven't posed it to my staff yet um, I think at this moment I would only say why not um, yes why not I would have to balance it out with the program you know they are being paid to be conservators and they're being paid to do the work for the HRC if I felt there was a promising student that really wanted to, if they would have to come to me and ask versus maybe me offering them that time. We offer the time, I mean, for instance, two or three of the conservators have gone off uh, to, on an internship to study, you know, like uh, we're trying, one of our paper conservators hopefully is going to San Francisco to the Museum of Modern Art to spend a year on learning paper conservation on modern materials. So I can't see any reason why that would be no, any different than allowing uh, somebody to go down the corridor and study with a fine binder. But um, yeah, I think it really comes about of whether somebody wants to come and says, I would like to do it. They need, you need that, in, you need a real in-depth uh, need and, and, and love of what you're wanting to do to go there, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs>